0: Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malin. So Ruth the Moab, Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David.
1: Lord God, as we open Your Word, I pray that You would speak to us. Pray, Lord, that as we look at the Lord, the story of Ruth as ending. The story that we could find ourselves in this story, and that we would be filled with awe in the way that You work Your redemption through ordinary people. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my Redeemer, amen. Well, good morning, once again, my name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Bart's. This is our second ever service here at Redeemer Bible Church at 9 a.m. And I don't know about you, I mean, even last week, if you were here, for me, took about halfway through the service to sort of wake up to the fact that this is all happening. (laughs) Just thinking about all the logistics and all the things that it took to get over here. And then in the midst of worship, and sort of remembering why we're doing this, that it's to gather as the people of God um, for all those who are here and then all of those who are not here yet so that there's a place and a time for them to come. So I see these pews and I think of the opportunity that God is giving us to be here in this new place, this new time, positioned here in the neighborhood, uh, partnering with Redeemer Bible Church is being so great, gracious to us. So it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm very excited to, you know, be able to take a nap this afternoon. I don't know about you and not think about my sermon all day. Yep. Glory be. So we're looking at the book of Ruth and uh, we read most of chapter four. I wanted you to hear the culmination of this story. And there were a lot of names and maybe it kind of washed over you. But I actually want to focus on the names, the names in this story, which give us a thread through the story of what God is doing and what is actually happening in this story. There's a lot of uh, customs and elders and gates and sandals being exchanged. So we can get confused um, about what's going on, but what's at work is redemption. And as we said, or as when I talked about Ruth chapter one a few weeks ago, this book is situated during the time of the judges, which is a pretty dark time for the, the people of Israel. But this story testifies to Faithful people acting faithfully in a faithless time. And we see that especially with Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. So I want to look at the characters. I want to look at their names and see what their names can tell us about what this story is really about. So let's start with Boaz because the chapter starts with Boaz. Boaz, at the end of the last chapter, Ruth had come to him at the threshing floor and Boaz says, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm I'm going to try to redeem you in the, the custom of the law, but there is another redeemer closer. So we have to do things the right way. So when he goes to the city gate and he sits the elders down and he finds the other redeemer who's closer to the situation, he's doing everything the way he exactly should. Boaz is a man of integrity. He acts in adherence to his obligations and his obligations to the law, but he's also shrewd. He has integrity and he has shrewdness and that is a potent combination. We don't often find those two things combined, but when they are combined, it's pretty amazing because in the story, he gathers them, he sits down the other redeemer and then he he recounts what's going on, but he withholds the crucial bit of information. Oh yeah, when you redeem this land, you're gonna get Ruth the Moabite. Oh, by the way. That's precisely what Boaz wants. But the other guy has, for whatever reasons, uh, that's not gonna work for him. It's going to risk his inheritance. We don't know exactly what that might mean. Um, We can sort of guess, but this other guy, we can just call him other guy because he doesn't have a name and we'll talk about that in a minute. Once Boaz reveals that crucial bit of information, then the battle is won. Boaz acts with shrewdness, but he also acts with integrity. So the name of Boaz in this story means integrity. It means soundness, but it also means shrewdness. And the name Boaz in the Old Testament is actually the name of a pillar in Solomon's temple. Boaz is a pillar that can bear weight because of its integrity. Bears the weight of the structure. In many ways, Boaz bears the weight of the structure of this story because he acts not just decisively, but with integrity, with righteousness. Naomi said at the end of chapter three to Ruth, this man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He's decisive, he's proactive, he has integrity, but he's also shrewd. It's a powerful combination. Boaz loves Ruth, yes but he also acts in accordance with the laws of Israel. So he is not willing to circumvent his obligation just to get what he wants. That's worth reflecting on. That's what it means to act with integrity. There's something that he wants, maybe there's an easier way to get it, but he refuses to take that easy way. He's doing what he needs to do. And these things are, these customs and practices are distant from us, but this leverant marriage idea is a way to take care of widows. It's a way to take care of the land of promise and make sure that it's handed down to the family line that it belongs to. It's actually a sign of God's mercy and Boaz understands it as such, but he is unwilling to act in a way that is against his obligations against the law. And he understands that something more is at stake than just a strip of land. And it may be hard for us to hear, but he, in his love for Ruth, is willing to fulfill the law in this deeper purpose of redeeming the land. He says it the way this way, Boaz says, I'm doing this to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not cut, be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place perpetuating the name, perpetuating the line. This all goes back to Genesis. Genesis is very much in play in this book. When we have a nod to Rachel and Leah, we have a nod to Tamar, the story of Tamar, their distant relative, Tamar and Perez. This idea of the seed, the seed in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, the seed that in the book of Genesis is linked to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to Judah. Perpetuating the line of Judah is perpetuating the line of redemption because the promise is that through the line of Judah, God will bring his great redeemer. So Boaz, maybe he doesn't understand all of that, but he has some sense of his family obligations. We have to keep this name going. This name matters. And it just so happens that he loves Ruth too. So we have Boaz. He is a man of shrewdness and integrity. And then we have in stark contrast to Boaz, the unnamed kinsman. Our text has it this way. The ESV is a little too kind to Mr. So-and-so. Verse one, it says, Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Another translation has it this way. Come here, what's your name? And sit down. The Hebrew is ploni almoni, which is kind of like Hebrew for Joe Schmo. Hey, Joe Schmo. Hey, guy. Hey, so-and-so. Hey, what's your name? Sit down right here. Now, the point is not that in the actual whatever history is behind this that Boaz actually said, hey, Joe Schmo." The point is the narrator is trying to tell us that this guy doesn't have a name. Boaz has a name, but this guy doesn't have a name. So we might say, hey, guy. Like if This has never happened to me as a pastor, but if I forget somebody's name, like, hey, man, how are you? Hey, guy. That's what Boaz is doing. He's saying, hey, Joe Schmo, come sit down. So the narrator of our story has made a literary choice that is rather significant to exclude his name. Now, he could exclude his name to save him from embarrassment. You could have been David's great-great-great-great-grandfather. How dare you not do that? That might be one reason, but it also could be for the reason that names matter so much in this book. And the fact that he doesn't have a name, the fact that his name disappears from the story means that his name is not perpetuated. His name is not raised up. He does not become part of the great line of redemption. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Joshmo, he's gone. He's out of that line. So we have Boaz contrasted with the unnamed kinsman who was unwilling to fulfill his obligation. He was the one who was closer, which is what the sandals had to do with. Back in Deuteronomy, you traded a sandal, and they were a little nicer to him than they needed to be because in Deuteronomy, you actually could spit on someone if you wanted to. Like, here's a sandal and some saliva, but they didn't do that in this story. They, they treated Joe Schmo, Plony, Almoni, so-and-so, what's-your-name, uh, nicely. So we have names being important. He doesn't have a name. It's worth reflecting on. He doesn't play his part in the story. Then we come to Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. We talked about this in chapter one, that Moab is part of a story, part of the dark story. Back to Genesis, you can read about Lot and his daughters for the details of where Moab comes from. But Ruth becomes something more than just a bad story and a bad family line. And the women, after Boaz has acted, after they get married, the women of the city say to Ruth, may the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. This is incredible. In this story of redemption, the Moabite becomes a matriarch of the covenant. She is linked to Rachel and Leah. The Moabites, the excluded, the ones that couldn't come into the house of worship for 10 generations, becomes a matriarch of the covenant. And this is all possible because of her decisive choice in chapter one that we talked about a few weeks ago, that when the opportunity came for her to go back to her land, her people and her gods, she rejected all of those things She clung to Naomi and she decisively turned away from her land, her people, her gods. And she embraced Naomi's land, Naomi's people, and Naomi's God. And so now in the economy of grace, she is so much more than a Moabite. She is a matriarch of Israel. She is part of the great line of redemption. Her name is written in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. And with Ruth, for the second time only in the entire story, we see the direct action of the Lord in verse 13. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The favor of the Lord in the form of a child. The name that is being raised up, the redemption that is being brought from Ruth. The Moabite who becomes a matriarch. So we have Boaz, we have Ruth, and after this moment they sort of fade from the story, and the narrator turns to Naomi. And last week Dave talked about Naomi as one with whom the Lord had dealt bitterly, and when she came back from the land of Moab and the people said, hey it's Naomi, and she said, no it's not. My name is Mara, my name is bitterness. My name was Pleasantness, but now it's bitterness. But in this moment, when she holds the child, she understands, and the, the women in the story understand that the great reversal has happened. That pleasantness that was bitterness is now pleasantness again. Her hands that were empty have been filled. Her heart that was desolate is being knit back together again. And so in this moment, Ruth and Boaz faded in the background because the redeemer has been raised up for her in the form of this child. And that is the great climax. That is the moment where all the reversals, everything that was broken comes back together. As I mentioned before, this commentator, Marianne Ann Taylor, tells us that this book of Ruth features poignant thematic reversals because it moves from famine to fullness, barrenness to fruitfulness, isolation to community, death to life. And in this very moment when Naomi holds the child, all of those things come to bear. Fullness, fruitfulness, community, life. And the women say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. In that context, they're talking about the child. And the community names the child. Did you notice that in the story? That it's the community around them the people of Bethlehem who name the child and his child the child's name is Obed, which is probably short for Obadiah, which means worshiper, which means one who serves the Lord. May his name be renowned in Israel. May the name of those who worship the true God be renowned in in Israel, Obed is a worshiper, one who serves the Lord. That's the opportunity for us as well, that we would be like Obed, those who worship and serve the Lord. And the last word of the entire book is a name, David. Our story ends with the name David. And then if you really want a complete picture, you can go read the genealogy at home. Genealogies are for us boring, but for them, They are testimonies, they are a compact way of speaking of the faithfulness of God. Generation to generation, life being perpetuated. And that this line culminates in David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. The final word of this story is David, the king to whom God promised promised an eternal line, a son who would sit on a throne forever. So the name of David reminds us the scale of the story. The details of the story play out in a small town with small people, but the scale of the story is the history of redemption itself. And the name of David reminds us of that. The name of David is also a reminder to us that God's redemption is always at work at multiple levels. God is working redemption for Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, but he's also working redemption for his people, Israel, and working redemption for his people, Israel. He is working redemption for the whole world because David's true son will become the kinsman redeemer, the Boaz for all of us. The one whose wing we hide under, the one who shelters us, the one who says he will act on our behalf. That true and better son of David comes from this line. So while the surface of the story, the scale may seem small, there's so much more at work. And it's a reminder to us that that's how God's providence works. It's something that we forget because providence is something that we tend to understand in retrospect, (laughs) that we look back on our lives and we see the way that God was weaving certain things together, circumstances, relationships, connections with people. We understand it in retrospect. But when we see those pieces come together, we see that God is always doing more than one thing at once. When he's working redemption for us, he's working redemption for his people on a larger scale as well. So these are the names in this story and I wanna end by reflecting on our name as a community and our names as individuals because we have an opportunity in confirmation to remember that we have new names. Because what confirmation is, is the confer- what does confirmation confirm? It confirms our baptisms. Whether you're being confirmed today or not, when we stand together, you will be invited to say the words of the Apostles' Creed, which is a baptismal vow. It's a reminder of our baptismal identity. It's a reminder that all of us have been immersed into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us that we by faith are like Ruth and that we have clung to Christ. We've been united to him and that we've taken his name, beloved son. We are called beloved sons and daughters because we've been been united to the true heir. So our confirmations confirm our baptisms. So as people come forward to be prayed for and to be confirmed, I invite you to reflect on your own baptism. As you say the words of the Apostles' Creed, I invite you to reflect on the new reality, the new community, the new life and the new name that is tied together with our baptismal identities. As I said, we are united by faith to our own Boaz, our own kinsman redeemer, who takes us under the shadow of his wings, who in his redemption fulfills all righteousness and who acts shrewdly in the cross. The cross is the shrewdest thing in all of history because it undoes the power of Satan, sin, and death, precisely those things that we reject and renounce in our baptismal vows. And we can reject them resoundingly because he has defeated them in his integrity and in his shrewdness. And so because of that reality, because of the cross and because of our baptisms being buried with him and being raised with him, we can be like Ruth and we can renounce the old ways, old things, old places, old gods. We can become like Naomi. Our bitterness can turn into pleasantness. Our emptiness can be filled. And we can become like Obed, true worshipers and true servants of the Lord. So now we have the opportunity to see this preached in a living way through the rite, the sacramental rite of confirmation, So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna transition to that. Lord God, I thank you for this story. And more than a story, I thank you for the truth of redemption. I thank you that we have a Boaz in the form of your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would cling to him. I pray, Lord, that we would find shelter under the shadow of his wings. We thank you, Lord, that you always act with integrity, but you are shrewd. And as we see people in our community confirmed, I pray that each of us could reflect on our own baptismal identity, that each of us who have been baptized have been immersed into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is in that name that we pray, amen.